You're listening to the That's My Financial Guy podcast, where we talk about life, love, the funny, and of course, money. What could go wrong? Welcome to the That's My Financial Guy podcast. I am your host, Brian Haney with The Haney Company, and uh, I'm ecstatic to have the equal man himself, the green glasses guru, Mr. Eric Qualman on with me. Thank you, my friend, for uh, carving out some time in your busy day. Super excited to be here. Yeah. Um, the hardest, the first four questions that I tend to ask all my guests are the hardest. So we'll, we'll just knock them out one, one at a time because uh, they're usually very thought provoking. We'll start with uh, what food will you not eat under any circumstance? What food will I not eat under any circumstances? I've had this food. I will not have it again. So <laughs> a lot of my family's in Colombia, and they brought up some ants, which I'm thinking these are going to be tiny, little brown. You can barely tell it's an ant. Just grab a handful. Maybe it's got a little crunch, some protein. I'm all game for it. But these things were huge, huge <laughs> black ants. I've never seen an ant this large. And now keep in mind, so I popped this thing in my mouth. I guess the best description for it is if you left a black bean out on the counter for a couple months, that's what it tasted like. But it was also Ooh. just you could feel that giant crunch, not in a good way, of that giant ant. And then I started to realize, wait, how long? I bet they've been carrying these things around as a novelty, like, hey, try our ants. And I'm, it's probably been <laughs> in the refrigerator, out of the refrigerator for months. Um, so that also, I think, factored into the, uh, the taste. That, yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever had the, uh, the visceral vomiting, gagging and vomiting at the same time reflex, but even just listening to your story, I'm kind of, I'm almost there. So that's, yeah, I, I, I'm going to mark that one down as a not to eat, not, not that, uh, insects of any kind have ever interested me. You're, you're more adventurous than I am, but, uh, that sounds terrible. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> Love it. Um, you'll like this because you're, you're a superhero of sorts, but in the, let's say the a la Avengers, if you could have a, a, you know, unconventional or conventional superpower, what superpower would you have? Wow. I mean, selfishly, you'd always want to fly for sure. Um, yeah. And I've given us a lot of thought because of my name with Equal Man, but I'm going to go more Twilight novel here to where, and I forgot the character's name, but when he walks in, he basically has a high EQ, emotional quotient, yeah. and empathy. So when he walks in the room, everyone feels better. I think that'd be cool to have that power that that guy has. You walk in and everyone just feels better. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, talk, talk about a, a, a power that actually influences and benefits everybody else, but uh, I'm also with you. Flying is probably number one on my list too, because it just seems so darn cool, you know. But or maybe speed reading, so I can read a book in five seconds. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, and 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 to go with the speed reading, you know, that like photographic memory. Like, if you ever watch uh, Suits, the show, um, the character Michael, who literally can once he reads something, he never forgets it, and it's like, you know. Uh, that to me, I, I, both of those would have to go hand in hand. If there was a superpower combo, speed read slash never forget everything photographically in your mind, that would be crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. They say you can't have a photographic memory, at least the interwebs say that. 
But I agree 100%. I've run into people, even my nephew, that guy, my nephew kills our whole family at the age of 11 in trivia. So yeah. there is some something in there that some people have, they can just remember everything. Yeah. God bless him. I, I'm, my head struggles sometimes to just remember basic things. Just ask my wife on, on the to-do list. She's like, well, I'm glad you were effective at work, but then uh, what about these things? I'm like, jeez. Um, all right. If you could have dinner with anyone famous, living or dead, who would you want to have a meal with? Man, this varies month to month, but I'm going to go, and maybe it's because you said dead, and I hope this guy lives 20 more years, but I'd go Warren Buffett because I'm, I mean, the guy's just the Oracle of Omaha, just to be able to build that out of Omaha, Nebraska. I grew up in the Midwest in Michigan, so, and I love that he still lives in the same house. I love that he's got his entire basement decked out in Coca-Cola in large part because he was an early investor in Coca-Cola. Uh, but I hope that that McDonald's he eats and that Coca-Cola eats keeps him around for a couple more years. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, that would, uh, that would definitely be quite the conversation over a meal too. Well, besides, besides this podcast and of course your own, are there any other podcasts that you've listened to that you'd want to plug or recommend to somebody? I find myself listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast a ton. Obviously, it's one of the top podcasts in the world. Tim Ferriss also just moved to Austin, which is where I live as well, a couple of years ago. So that's a great one, Tim Ferriss's podcast. If you're into history, uh, which I am, or those kind of reveals where you don't know what the mystery is, and it's about seven to 10 minutes, Mike Rowe's podcast. If you remember Mike Rowe, he's from Dirty Jobs. Uh, yeah. And so he yeah. does a good job of taking... Um, what used to be Paul Harvey used to do on the radio, he used to say, and that is the rest of the story. And so Mike Rose kind of, as a kind of credit to Paul Harvey is saying, I'm going to pick that up from Paul and do my, that's the way I heard it. So that's Mike Rose podcast. That is the way I heard it. Love it. And, he, and I love Dirty Jobs too. A crazy show. You'd, you'd have to watch that and then Hoarders and you know, kind of, and then clean sweep, right? Just to kind of cover all of those bases, right? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, I met him a couple, many years ago, now several times in the be in the green room. He's a great guy, but also just, he thinks differently. So he's got a great podcast. And, and being a former basketball player, he just did one on Wilt Chamberlain, that if Wilt Chamberlain would have just shot free throws underhanded, like granny style, just like, um, Rick Barry did. Rick Barry had one of the highest percentage, if not the highest percentage of free throw shooting. He actually shot them granny style, uh, which is two hands underhanded. Uh, and so whether it's Will Chamberlain or Shaq, if they would have just checked their ego at the door, then they would have dramatically increased their scoring per game just by making more than 50% of their free throws because they both shot under 50%, I believe. I'm not sure about Shaq, but I'm pretty sure both of them shot under 50% for their career. So I love the way that Malcolm Gladwell is esoteric and also takes a different lens. And that's what I'm always trying to do is when I write, is I think of a magnifying glass, how is the world looking through the magnifying glass? And then I flip that magnifying glass over and even though it's blurry at first, in time I'm starting to see a different pattern. So that's what I'm always trying to do is everyone's looking over here, what's over here? What's the opposite of that known truth? No, I love that. Anytime you can, you can get a paradigm shift or just see things in a new light. I think it's so 
cognitively, emotionally, relationally rewarding because you grow as a person, you know, and it's just, it, it benefits all of us to just try to expand the limits of how we see the world because then we just become better at being citizens, right? And, and people and all that kind of stuff. So I, I completely agree. I love that. Um, and I also love Gladwell's books. So <laughs> not, not, not hard to, to put down. So, um, and Malcolm's a, he's a huge runner. So he's completely in athletics. So it's great. So you've got this super intelligent guy that also starts his day looking up what's on ESPN. So, uh, I love that he has that balance. No, that's perfect. Yeah. I mean, as a sports fanatic junkie and active, uh, I still, still play lacrosse with the youngins. Uh, so I, I, I get it. And I, I love that because it's that, you know, it's that duality of seeing life and then seeing competition and seeing some of the really fun things. And, you know, there are no politics in sports too. Although I don't know, somebody would disagree with me, but the way I see it, there isn't. So it's also a nice safe place. <laughs> to, you know, have fun and, and, and build camaraderie. Um, so you, you, you're a Michigan person. Uh, tell me, to, you know, give me a part of your story. I mean, I know enough of kind of your professional journey, um, but, you know, share your story as to how you got here and some of the, you know, the interesting or maybe not heard of twists and turns that, that got you to where you are today. So one thing that I always harken back to that reminds me, hey, Walt Disney, if you can dream it, you can do it, is that when I grew up, I'm a huge basketball guy. Like that was my mission. That was my dream. I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. The first thing I ever sold was marigold seeds. So if you, marigolds are those orange and yellow flowers. They're pretty prominent in Michigan. Uh, but you can break one of those open and there's literally hundreds of seeds. And you put those into a tiny cup, a Dixie cup, and then we could sell them at the time, I think it was 25 cents. And so we could walk around the neighborhood selling these marigold seeds. Um, but then eventually in eighth grade, I actually started a, a magazine, a basketball magazine, Swish Magazine, all around basketball, um, kind of Mel Kuyper-esque. So if you know Mel Kuyper, he does a lot of yep. the drafting for NFL. And that's how he actually got on ESPN is that he was just a kid that loved predicting who should be drafted. Uh, well before all this big data existed. Uh, but long story longer, I had Swish Magazine. So just I'm telling you that because my love for basketball was just, it was fanatical. Um, and then as a junior in high school, I was cut from the basketball team. Cut. So wow. my dream of playing college basketball looked like it was down the drain. But at Michigan State, I wanted to be part of the program. So I became a manager. You actually had to try out to become a manager. That's how intense and, and tough it is at Michigan State, which is always a top 10 program under Tom Izzo, but you have to try out to actually be a manager, which is a water boy. Um, and so I did that, tried out, made the manager, but then I eventually walked on the team. And the reason I'm telling you this long story is that things happen for you, not to you. And yep. so we only carried 13 scholarship players at the time, 13 players on the team in total, actually. And sometimes if they're sick or there's injuries, occasionally, once or twice a year, I would be able to play in the practice because they just needed a body. And so this is one of those days. And I go, this is my chance. I've been working. I'd put on, I was 165 pounds when I came into college, uh, 6'4", 165 pounds. I was fortunate to grow two inches, to be a little over 6'6". And then I put on basically 40 to 50 pounds. So I was up, up to 210. 
And I go, I think I'm ready. I think it's my time to shine. I think I can make the team. And so when I got this moment, I go, I'm going to, I got to, this is my moment. This is my shot. And I was fortunate. Everything was going in. Like you name it, even a three-pointer would bank in, even though I didn't call bank, it would go in. <laughs> and so I go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm, I'm excelling. I am taking advantage of this opportunity. And then all of a sudden disaster strikes. Disaster in the form of an errant elbow that hits me in the mouth. And it hit me in just right th the right way that it dislodged three teeth. Now, Oof. keep in mind, I was born with two teeth missing. So I had, for most of my life, one tooth that, that made up for that space that was missing. So when I got hit in the mouth, it, it hurt like the dickens, but I kept playing. I, I kind of spit the teeth. I thought it was a tooth, so I thought it was just the fake one. And spit it into my hand and then put it on the, the floor, really. Just kind of getting gross. But anyways, I kept playing. <laughs> And then eventually the trainer comes over and goes, oh my gosh, you're still bleeding. Let me look at your mouth. He goes, no, 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 that's not fake. There's two teeth missing. So they find the teeth. Uh, we rush to the dentist. I won't bore you with that gory detail. But I'm sitting in the chair going, I can't believe this happened to me. My one moment. But then the next day at practice, Coach Izzo goes, Quammen, I don't know if you're the toughest guy I know or the dumbest guy I know. But I think it's a combination <laughs> of the two. And so I realized that I eventually walked on the team a couple months later. Izzo had built the program on grit and grind and toughness. And he always says that good players play, tough players win. And so in a moment where I thought, I can't believe this happened to me, I realized looking back, it happened for me. And the reason I tell you that story is that by walking on the basketball team and eventually getting a scholarship at Michigan State, a near impossibility when you think about a kid getting cut from their high school basketball team as a junior is that it taught me that I can achieve anything. Walt Disney, if you can dream it, you can do it. And I'm telling you this so that your listeners can understand that it's really about stepping into your own story each and every day, but it's also you never lose sight of that dream. Don't let it die. I could have let that dream die. And by not letting that die, it taught me a life lesson that I hold to this day. And that experience I always harken back to, no matter when I'm going through a tough time, is I go, look, I got through that. I was able to make that happen. We can do it. That's awesome. No, I love it. Uh, as, a, as a fellow Big Tenner from uh, IU, so we've, we've enjoyed some, uh, some pretty competitive uh, basketball moments in, uh, in the Big Ten. And yeah, that's, uh, that's not just powerful, but it's also um, – you know, such a, such a good, I think, encouragement from a, how can I make sure uh, that I stay true to me and, and really understand if we, you know, if I kind of segue this into part of, I know what you talk about, which is, you know, really your, your, your brand in, in a lot of, a lot of ways and, you know, making sure that you're able to kind of, um, you know, convey that brand and, and that personality dynamic and that kind of ethos uh, you know, in a, in a professional setting, in a personal setting, and just, you know, I think that that's, um, you know, extremely powerful. And uh, what's, what's the most exciting part of your day and what you do? Most exciting part of my day is always with the kids. Uh, yeah. So I've got some daughters and that always gives me perspective, but it also just reminds me how blessed I am. Each and every day, that's definitely the most exciting time is with my wife and with my kids. I love it. That's great. Yeah. And how long have you been in Austin since I know you, 
you didn't start there. You guys have been there for a little while now. So I came to Austin for graduate school and then I've stayed, we came back here. I was in Boston for many, many years and we've been back in Austin now six years. That's awesome. That's awesome. So social nomics, something that I know you talk a lot about. Um, if, if, you know, someone hears that word and doesn't really, or is unfamiliar with, you know, what that could mean, how would you try to describe that uh, to someone? And sorry, you're, the word cut out that you said there. Social nomics. Oh, cool. Yeah, social nomics at a six-second level is just word of mouth on digital steroids, or word of mouth is now world of mouth. So no matter what you do out there, whether you're in financial services, whether you're in quick service food, it's really always gotten your best clients, your best customers, your best employees, and your best teammates from word of mouth. And so now all it is is it's taking word of mouth and putting that on digital steroids. So what are some ways that you've seen that work successfully, either for an organization or even like an individual professional? Yeah, if we're looking at one good example is in the financial sector, I was working with someone that does external wealth management. And what they told me is they go, look, I didn't even know what Facebook was, but I like sharing stuff. And so when I got on there, I didn't post me, 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 which is a big mistake that a lot of people do. But this guy was smart enough to say, you know, I just wanted to provide value. And so he would provide, here's the top 10 retirement places. And here's 10 things you didn't know that'll make your life easier by managing your money better. So really he was giving them the dream. And then by doing that, just providing that value, expecting nothing in return. He just wanted to provide value to however many listeners that he had, it doesn't matter if you have one or whether you have a million, are you providing value? And by providing that value, he saw, and this isn't the reason he was doing it, but he saw that his revenue increased by $3 million the next year, just by wow. providing that value. People became aware of him, started following him and said, hey, do you do this? Do you manage money? Um, and then he goes, yeah, I do it. I can help you out and I'll sit down with you. And so that's, that's one key example on how to do it. If you want to look at another example, if you look at the enterprise software space, IBM, all they were doing was out there listening. So a lot of it is if you just listen, just like if you're in a one-to-one -one conversation, but now we can do this digitally. If you listen for keywords, so they were listening for a keyword RFP, and what that means is request for proposal. <laughs> and so when someone put out an RFP, they wouldn't come in, it's in our DNA to come in and go, oh, buy our service, here it is, buy our service. Instead, they go, hey, it looks like you're going through an RFP. You're probably trying to find a template to do the RFP for your company. Here's a free template. And then they go, this is a great template. Thank you. Um, do you guys have a service like this? We do have a service. And again, they saw their business increase by up to 40%. And we're talking 40%. We're talking IBM. We're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars. Wow. And those are awesome examples. Um, and you, you know, you, I know you talk about digital leadership as well. And I, I, I love kind of the marriage of those two words, digital and leadership, because I think, um, you know, in an era when there, there's a lot of um, examples maybe of, of not the best form of leadership, I like the idea that, that people who might not necessarily have had, um, you know, a huge platform can now, uh, you know, they're empowered. To, to go out and uh, to lead in, in significant ways and try to 
provide, you know, a positive influence. So talk about some of, you know, maybe the things that you've seen in working with leaders in a variety of industries and professions and seeing them have success or um, be able to make changes that, you know, because of technology, maybe they, they couldn't have otherwise. Yeah, I mean, we look at digital leadership at a 10 second level, all it is is empathy. Do I have the emotional intelligence to understand what you need, whether you're a, a partner, whether you're an employee, or whether you're a customer? And so really it's leadership in this digital era. It's really about empathy. Am I have empathy for you? And when you do that, all success comes to you when you actually figure that out. Um, and everyone around you actually benefits from it. Um, when we look at specific examples, when I was able to sit down with Tony Shea from Zappos, I love that his mindset's just different. So when he looked at it and said, wait, social nomics, word of mouth on digital steroids. Okay, that makes sense. The world shifted. We're going to sell shoes online. So in the social nomic things happen at the same time. So how do we do this? And he goes, okay, I've got $40 million in marketing. What if I move that $40 million and put it into customer service? Since that's the new marketing, since social nomics is word of mouth on digital steroids, if I move that money to customer service, now that customer service rep, I can empower them. If it's under $100 or less, they don't have to talk to their manager. They can just, hey, I want to solve this issue for you, customer, and go ahead and solve it. And so that's part, a huge part, that fueled their success. And eventually Zappos was purchased by Amazon for a billion dollars. So I love Tony Shea as a digital leader because he always thinks differently. Or I love just simple things that turn into big results. And so it might be Godiva, the chocolate company. They want to start understanding who their customer is because historically they didn't understand their customer because they'd sell their chocolate in the retail outlet. And they didn't know who bought it. They'd have no idea who bought their chocolate. But now in this digital era, when they start to understand the digital leadership mindset, their mindset needs to shift to act more like software as a service. Oh, wait, people buy chocolate. They want chocolate in their house every month. And they want that friction removed. How can we help them? Oh, we can have a subscription service that will send you a dive of chocolate each and every month. Or removing friction. And that's what Amazon does so well. That's why they're so successful right now is they're removing friction. And the Godiva chocolate example, when you open up a chocolate wrapper today, it's blank on the inside. Whether that's Godiva, whether that's Hershey, they're mainly blank on the inside. And what you can do is take advantage of that by saying, hey, if you want chocolate delivered to your doorstep each and every month, just scan this QR code and we'll start shipping chocolate to you each and every month. It doesn't matter what you sell. I have a pair of Levi jeans. Gosh, was it impossible for me to reorder those jeans? They had all <laughs> these numbers on the inside. I put it in their website. I called customer service to tell them, here's the numbers on here. I just want to reorder these jeans. Nobody could figure it out. But yet they had all this marketing inside these jeans, all these numbers, but not one helped me, the customer. Whereas if you take a lens of digital leadership, the number one thing the inside of those jeans should say Here's how to reorder these jeans. That's it. End of story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, it, and, and you're right. I mean, it's, it, it is so simple. And yet, you know, we've seen such a shift. This is that paradigm shift that you, you started kind of framing things with where, you know, I think a lot of marketers, sales organizations, even industries are used to this one-sided form of communication in terms of, Here's what we do. Here's why we're great. Here's why you, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, should, you know, 
buy from us, engage with us, et cetera. And yet that's not really the best way. Clearly it's not the best way. And it, you know, it's, it's probably hurt certain organizations that don't see it differently and haven't been doing a good job listening and, and being empathetic. Um, I love what you said there. It's simple, but it's not easy. That's right. It's simple, but it's not easy. Like if I want to go in better shape, it's simple. I got to eat better and exercise more, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. Uh, and if I want to step into discomfort, because all digital leaders practice stepping into discomfort, it sounds simple, but it's certainly not easy. Yeah. Well, and you know, as you, if, if you were to work with, um, let's say, let's, let's transition because our, a large part of our audience and what our practice works with professionally is in the association landscape, a landscape I know you're very familiar with. If you were to talk to, let's say, the CEO of a membership organization or a trade group about some of these discomfort points, what would be some of those things that you'd kind of walk through to try to help somebody who maybe is at that, that inflection point understand, but maybe doesn't know the best way forward? Yeah, it's a great question. The best way to walk in discomfort is always deal from a position of strength. What are you strongest in? And so what I would walk through from a digital leadership perspective, again, that's just leadership in this digital era, is I'd look at five commonalities, five strengths that they most likely possess, meaning that in that room, they're already good at practicing these five habits. But what I want to figure out is what is their number one strength of the five? And the short of brevity. I'm just going to go over these real quick. It's really about simple, true, act, map, and then P, people. So I want them to deal from a position of strength. And so let's say that their core strength is P, people, that they're really good at dealing with people. And interestingly enough, I've spoken in 55 countries. Whenever I do a survey, a hand-raised survey at the end of these sessions, it's basically an even dissemination of those five habits. You don't see a pattern to where, oh, if I'm in front of CEOs, they're all P people, 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 you know, P for people. It's actually, it's disseminated across evenly. But when I do that, we figure out, okay, this is your core strength. Let's get back to that. And then now you can walk in discomfort because you're dealing with a position of strength. Um, and again, you don't have to wait to be in your strength. We can do it in 10 minutes, like identify, here we are. That's your strength. You know what it is. Now let's walk into discomfort. So discomfort for a CEO might be, hey, I'm a people person but I'm not uncomfortable being on digital. They're like, okay, your first step's probably on LinkedIn. Let's deal with the people you already know. Or if you wanna just practice on a daily habit, just walking in discomfort, try to do some unique things that train you to be in discomfort. So it could be the next time you go into a coffee shop, as you get up to the front of the line, when you get up to the front, ask for a 10% discount. That is actually gonna teach you to walk in discomfort which the reason you do that is it makes every other life decision much easier on a day-to-day -day basis as you practice these habits. One of the reasons that I wear these, and your audience might not know, but I wear some crazy neon bright green glasses, which I won't go into the whole story of how that started, but one of the benefits of doing that each and every day is that I'm walking in discomfort. It trains me to walk in discomfort. I can see the edges of the bright green on the outsides, no matter what I'm looking into, and it trains me to walk in discomfort as people on the street look at me and go, that guy looks crazy with those green glasses. Um, but it helps me out. No, I love it. I, uh, 
I remember, and you'll probably appreciate this as a, as a basketball guy, you know, one of the first steps I tried to do to become more ambidextrous for sports is actually, you know, eat with my left hand or my off hand and brush my teeth. And, you know, just trying to start that type of a habit was very, very uncomfortable. And then, you know, it was amazing how quickly you can, you can, you know, grow in, in doing those types of simple things. And so, yeah. So no, I love I, that. And then what's easier for you eating with your left hand or brush your teeth with your left hand? Honestly, I, I, it all feels fluid now. And, and I guess that's just because it's, you know, two decades plus of doing it, but I don't even notice. Um, a lot of times it's kind of, you know, the, 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 probably the brushing the teeth part is a little bit better. And it's more just, you know, whichever side of my mouth I'm trying to brush, I use that hand. So it, it, it makes sense. It even makes sense in my mind why I would do that. Um, but yeah, it, it's just been interesting how, you know, those little types of things then develop that, you know, that habit and also break down those barriers of, you know, oh, I, I, I can't do this or this is going to be really hard or impossible, that kind of stuff. All of a sudden, you know, those impossible things seem a lot more possible. So, and you know, it's funny. I have an impossible time on the basketball court, both hands fine. But for some reason, I have a really tough time taking a selfie. When I'm at these conferences, people want to take selfies and they hand me their phone. I have a really hard time taking it with my left hand. And I don't know why that is. I've got to, I've, you've inspired me. I am going <laughs> to go into training so I can do a selfie left-handed. Love it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. No, and I, uh, and I also love the glasses thing as well because, uh, you know, I think that no, that's. No, thank you. They're very, very binary, the glasses. Either love them or hate them. Yeah. Love, I I'm, uh, always love if you. I'm a, I'm a sock person, and I also have a few choice outfits uh, much of which are, are to the chagrin of my wife, but um, yeah, I think it's it's you know if it, if it fits you right and you get to stand out and it opens doors to actually have conversations that you might not otherwise have had, go for it. You know, and that's uh, the key. I, I actually hated wearing the green glasses at first, and I'm still not 100% comfortable with them, and that's why I say it, it trains me to walk in discomfort. But what I started to realize is opening doors. It closed some doors, and what I learned is you don't want to be in the middle. You want to be on the edges. Um, and so by being on that edge, I realized I was able to empower that many more people because I'd have these random run-ins of people at the airport. And all of a sudden they go, oh, well, you need to come speak at our conference. Or wait, aren't you, don't you guys do some animation? And that's how we did some animation for Disney. We have an animation studio called Equal Man Studios. Uh, but anyways, the reason I tell you that is because the glasses, sometimes they cause those conversations to happen. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And that was, you know, as somebody who in our professional sphere goes to a lot of, you know, quote unquote networking or social events in a professional uh, capacity. And I'm and acutely aware of how I would say probably a majority of people that attend those types of events are not very comfortable doing it. It's not, you know, just, they're not, it's not just a room filled with outgoing people that just love doing that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I was just always kind of trying to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, the chances are if I'm walking around talking or, you know, whatever, that there's a healthy portion of people in here that aren't as comfortable. So for one of the exciting points for me was to say, well, what thing can I do? What ways can I stand out? Like you said, to, you know, spark a conversation that might not otherwise have happened and maybe hopefully bring a level of comfort to somebody else. Cause they're like, wow, that guy's a little out there. And yet, you know, he's somebody I can talk to and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I love that. It's a, we're kindred spirits, I think, in that way. 
Yeah, um, we're starting to see that people aren't just introverted or extroverted. I think that's an old mindset. Yeah, uh, I agree. And you have a tendency to lean towards one or the other, but I think we're both. So when I'm on stage, when I'm on this podcast, all of a sudden it's the extrovert, it's the equal man. And then when I'm off stage, it's Eric Qualman. I kind of need to decompress. I need to be quiet. And I've seen that across the board for a lot of folks. We actually, we probably don't have time to get to it, but we'd love to write a book that's like introverted, extroverted, because we think it's a mix of both of those. Yeah, and I, and I also think too, you can train yourself in certain settings, right? So even if you're naturally, if you said, you know, my natural state of rest is I'm an introvert, but yet I have to do X, Y, and Z, therefore, you can kind of almost empower yourself, um, you know, and, and be on or off. So yeah, I, I appreciate that too, because there are definitely times when, you know, I feel like I'm always ready, willing, and able to go out and mix and mingle and be extroverted. But there are definitely times when I'm like, nope, I just, you know, need to unplug, need to unwind, don't need to talk to anybody, don't need to, <laughs> don't need to engage. So I can appreciate that. When you work with, um, associations and I want to kind of talk about uh, one of the fun things I know you talk about storytelling um, you know I, I am fascinated I have a, a passion for storytelling it's the oldest form of communication human communication and I just I love how a story unfolds I love good stories whether they be books you know movies doesn't matter um, it fascinates me and I think uh, you know part of the great uh, you know, this era of digital engagement allows more people to tell more fun and engaging stories. Now, in a framework of the association landscape where, you know, you have an organization representing a, a collection of professionals, companies and industry, etc. What are some ways that you see the power of storytelling, you know, really improving and, and equipping associations to do better and do more? for their members. Yeah, it's interesting. It depending on the association, the key for all associations, if you're the storyteller, the key is to understand the audience first and foremost. You'll hear a lot of people give you the brass tacks on here's how you tell a good story, which is important, but it won't matter. You can tell the greatest story in the world, but if it's the wrong audience, they're not gonna care. And so first and foremost, is that understand that audience. And if you have 15 great stories, you understand this is the story for that particular audience. Um, and then I don't have to go into all the research behind storytelling. People, that's just in our DNA that we love. It's easier for us to grasp the story and then we can pass that along. Whereas you give me facts and figures all day to say, this is why you should do X, Y, Z. It doesn't resonate as well as, hey, did you know that Sally just did this? And she's in the same business that you're in and she's trying to do the exact same thing that you're trying to do. And that she did this and this was the result Situa situation, action and the result. Um, and so that's, that's the key. Understand the audience first and then pick the story that is right for that audience. And you mentioned also as well, finding a way to line up with that one best thing. Um, and that, you know, I think there's a big opportunity now for organizations to maybe tell a story about what they're best at, but maybe have not known to emphasize or haven't been able to effectively communicate all the time. What are some ways that you see, because um, I think, you know, it, it's also two parts, right? You know, you mentioned the audience and having the audience focus mentality, but also using digital mediums to have conversations to be better listeners. How do you see that kind of duality where you, 
you want to do a good job telling a story, but you also kind of have the opportunity to almost have that story become a part of a conversation. Yeah, I mean, I always say it always gets back to Flintstones and Jetsons. So it's we're in the Jetsons era, but it's exactly like the Flintstones and the Jetsons that are winning. And so a good storyteller is a great listener because the stories are usually coming from someone else over time from different vantage points. Everyone has a story to tell. And one of the best gifts you can ever give someone is to let them tell that story. And a lot of your listeners, we're all in sales, no matter what you do, we are all in sales. And so if you're a parent trying to convince your kid to eat their green beans, you are in sales. Uh, interestingly enough, kids are really good at sales. Be like, my daughters will be like, hey, I want ice cream, I want ice cream, I want ice cream. I'm saying, no, no, no. And guess what? Eventually, Sophia's eating ice cream. And so it's really about understanding one of the greatest gifts you can give someone is letting them tell their story. And when it relates to sales, it's actually listen first, sell second. And I came across this from a digital perspective, but then as more and more I unwrapped it and sat down with associations and sat down with folks, it held even truer in the offline world. I came upon it because I'm a digital person for the last 27 years. I said, look, you guys are all going about this wrong. When you get on digital, what you're trying to do is your sell, sell, sell. That's the exact opposite of what you want to do. You want to listen first. And so then once I got into it, I started to unravel it more. I go, well, that's of course true because that holds true in the offline world even more so. Uh, you'd never walk into a cocktail party and just walk up to five people you didn't know they're laughing, having a good time and say, excuse me, can I interrupt you and tell you why I'm awesome for five seconds? <laughs> you would never do that. And so it doesn't work in the offline world and it doesn't work in the online world. But the reason I tell you that is one of the greatest things we can do one of the best gifts we can give someone is let them tell their story. And in return, we get that gift. Now we have that story to tell to others. Well, I think that I've seen that be kind of the powerful emphasis behind a lot of associations that are really trying to engage. They're, they're listening so well, and then they're pulling those stories into the fabric of their organization. So it the organization is, is now taking on a new level of engagement where, you know, you're seeing the members, not just the organization as some sort of, you know, overall big kind of nebulous group. It's, it's the stories, the, you know, the accumulated stories of, of members and, and industries and what they're doing. And um, it's, you're right. I think it's, I think it's a fantastic uh, gift as well as just a great opportunity, a great place to be because, you know, if you can draw out somebody's story and, and then allow that person or, or organization or what have you to, to tell it in ways that they hadn't told it before, I think it, you know, draws a lot of people together. Yeah. And a good point too, is that you always got to ask a story could be amazing and entertaining, but you need to ask, so what, so what yeah. as the audience leaves a month from now, what was their takeaway? Were they just entertained? That's sometimes great. Sometimes they just need entertainment and they hire an entertainer to do that. Uh, what I always try to approach it as I want to entertain, educate, and empower the audience. When we talk about empower, that's where I need to say, so what? So what are they supposed to do with the story that I just told? That's great. Um, as we wrap this thing up, I want to, I want to take a few minutes to talk about, um, e-learning because I know uh, we kind of before we got going we were, we were talking about that and I had a, 
my last uh, podcast interview was with a friend who's, who's, you know, heavily involved in the e-learning space. So I wanted to just kind of get your, you know, engagement with how in this digital era, really, we're able to provide learning to uh, a mass audience and really to unreached people groups that, you know, have had a lot of barriers to, you know, learning and engagement. Um, what are some of the exciting things that you see? I know you've done some work with edX and stuff um, about how, you know, we can deliver quality uh, learning across a broad landscape of, of folks. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. I am on a personal mission to make sure that, because there's a lot of talking heads out there, a lot of my peers that are talking about, oh, don't go to school, don't do this. And what sometimes sinks into their listeners, and this might not be what they're trying to communicate, but sometimes young folks hear this, or what doesn't matter whether you're 18 or 80, education is always in style. So you've got to train yourself to be a lifelong learner. And when you talk about online learning, especially we're going through some times right now, I don't want to date this podcast, but there's a lot of obviously coronavirus going on. So people are trying to learn from at home. My hope is this is just an exposure, no pun intended, but this is exposure for all those learners to understand there is an edX.org out there. And I was fortunate to be there at the MIT Harvard Initiative to put all their courses online for free. And now they have over 150 institutions from around the world that you, if you want to learn about sharks or you want to learn about neuroscience, it is on edX.org for free. It's the biggest no brainer ever to go on there and learn what you want to learn. Um, and again, I just actually interviewed Anand Agarwal. He's the guy that's the CEO of it for the last eight years. I was fortunate to sit with Anand up in Cambridge uh, for many years as we launched edX.org. Um, and he taught Salman Khan, and Saul actually is the founder of Khan Academy, which was funded by Bill Gates. So a lot of you might know Khan Academy if you have kids. Again, great online learning tools for free uh, for your kids. And so edX is really just the university version of that. So again, you got me going on my diatribe, but it's basically education never goes out of style. If you have access to the internet, whether you're in Nepal, or whether you're in Nippoli, it doesn't matter that you can get a Harvard, MIT, Cal Berkeley, University of Texas on down the line education for free. Well, and I, I, and I love that. And I, 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 that's why I wanted to tee that diatribe up because I think it's, uh, I think it's so great. And I think, um, you know, and, and talking with one of your, your associates, your colleagues, you know, also addressing the stigma that online learning is somehow less than in terms of, you know, compared to going to, to a, a traditional, you know, high school, college, whatever it is that, you know, really, you know, we're able to get that kind of level of learning and quality. And maybe in some respects, based off of somebody's learning style or capacity, it might even be better suited um, because not everybody is great in a classroom environment. And yet some people can learn and thrive uh, by themselves in an online environment in ways they couldn't in the classroom. So I think that that's, you know, a huge opportunity for more and more organizations to find out what their part of that equation is. Um, where have you seen the most growth uh, since, you know, getting involved uh, with edX over the last few years? And where do you see it? Where do you see it kind of moving forward? So edX eight years ago started with zero users and now it has 26 million students. And wow. I want to stress something that you pointed out is that it's really that combination. It's getting back to that Jetsons and Flintstones. 
what we've seen at edX is that these students also want to meet together physically so they can learn better. So it really is that combination. When you can do that, that's a huge help. Um, amazing stories. You can learn at your own pace. There's a lot of folks that were dyslexic that sent in just saying, I, I, this is so amazing. I can learn at my own pace. So everyone learns at their own pace. Um, there's a kid that was 15 years old in Nepal. And just by having access to the internet, he aced an MIT course, which no one aces. And then, wow. so it gave him that exposure that then get to MIT and then graduate from MIT. And now he works at Facebook. So I could take up this whole podcast talking about the amazing <laughs> things uh, that education and online education and free education can do for you. Um, but it's really grown. There's 26 million users. There are actually, you can pay for a full master's if you want, or you can do a mini master's program now because before what would happen if you took two years of college and you didn't complete the four years, what do they call you? They call dropout. you a dropout, yep. like a stigma as a loser. Well, that doesn't make sense. Now you can do these mini masters. So if you do two years, then at least you get a certificate. So it's a whole new world. I'm super excited about it. Hopefully you can hear that in my voice, but I love um, all the changes in education that are happening rapidly. When you think about going from zero eight years ago to 26 million users, uh, think about that if that's your business. If you grew from zero to 26 million users, you'd, pretty, you'd be pretty pumped. Yeah, absolutely. Any final shout outs you wanna make? My final shout out is for all of you to have fun, help people. Um, that's what we're trying to do on the Super You podcast. We're trying to unlock and unleash your inner superpower. So it's so awesome to join you uh, here today. And if anything I do to help anyone out there, um, that's what life's all about. Have fun, help people. What's the best way for people to connect or follow you or get in touch? The best way to connect with me, it's super easy. Thank you, parents, for giving me a fantastic name. It is Equalman. <laughs> so I'm Eric Qualman, but it's first initial, last name. We're Equalman across the board on all outlets, whether it's Equalman.com or across all social media outlets. Awesome. Thanks for your time today, Eric. Really great talking to you. No, thank you. It was an honor, and thanks for letting me join your listeners. This is great. Awesome. Have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the That's My Financial Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed yourself. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can find us online at thehaneycompany.com or on Twitter at The Haney Company. The information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Haney is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated, member FINRA CIPIC.